When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep going. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophet who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep going. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, so the two of them could walk over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet... If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha said, saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went, Elisha went over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed at to the ground before him. This is God's word. Thank you, Matt. Um, first of all, I just want to apologize for that advent reading. It was longer than I anticipated it. So for four nights, I had to read this long thing. The rest of them are nice and short. And so when he was reading, I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> I'm sure I had a shorter section in mind and just copied and pasted the wrong verses. So uh, my apologies. Next week will be shorter. And John, you don't get it next week. So sorry. <laughs> uh, let's open with a word of prayer before we turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, um, we thank you for Advent, for the holiday season, for um, for Christmas. And uh, Lord, from a secular perspective, it's sales and, and jingle bells and, and Santa Claus and we're about it. But we know from a religious perspective, this is all anticipating and looking forward to the great day of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we're grateful for that. And, and one of the refrains that bleeds from the religious um, Christmas into the secular is uh, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And so, Lord, we want to pray this morning for peace on earth. Um, Lord, we're uh, in such a tumultuous time with, with so many things happening in the world and in, in our own nation that are just um, startling and confusing, things I, I didn't think I would be saying. 
yet, Lord, um, we have a peace that surpasses our understanding. And as the world rolls and turns, Lord, we have this steady and sure assurance that Jesus rules, that he has ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, and that he rules the nations. And so, Lord, we're, we're confident in the middle of that. But, Lord, we pray that that peace would spread. And so in this holiday season, um, season of cheer and goodwill, uh, Lord, would you indeed spread some of that peace in this earth. And we look forward to the day when Jesus rules and peace will reign. Uh, but until then, we ask that it might come and come on over uh, to us here. And Lord, I pray that you would bless this Advent series, this Advent season, and just use it, Lord, to in- heighten our anticipation of the birth of Christ so that Christmas morning would be more than uh, presents and Santa Claus, but Lord, it would be the greatest miracle that the eternally begotten Son of God took on flesh and was born into the world. And it's just an amazing miracle. And Lord, the reason that that happened is even more amazing that you would come and save us. So thank you for that, Lord, and, and we want you to now bless your glorious advent to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, Advent is this time where we traditionally look forward to the birth of Christ. We look anticipating what was it like for the folks in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, to not have Christ coming and to be anticipating, always looking forward and, and walking through that anticipation with them. And so this, this year I chose as a theme uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one, you know, who's, who is pointing to Christ. He's pointing back to Jesus. And so uh, it seemed like a fitting and appropriate Advent theme to say, well, how are we doing this year with John the Baptist? Um, so... We're going to look at different aspects of him, and, and we'll touch on some of them, and they kind of overlap a little bit. But, but this week, I wanted to look at this one promise that we get about John. So this is from the announcement of his birth in, John, er, in Luke chapter 1. Uh, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he fell upon him uh, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn the hearts of, uh, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will be, go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom, uh, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we get this promise that John is going to is going to be a forerunner to this 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 great promise, this one who's who's going to come. And so he's pointing forward. But what I want to focus on this morning is he will co- go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what does that mean? What what does it mean that he's going to go in the spirit of Elijah? Well, I, as I was thinking about it, I thought the only place we can really go to figure out what that means is where Elijah's spirit is talked about and transferred. And so that was the reading we got this morning. And it sounded kind of strange, didn't it? That re- threefold repeat at the beginning of, you know, stay here, no, I won't. And, um, and then uh, this, this crossing the Jordan. And it just seemed, feels like a strange story. What I want to do this morning is, is let the strangeness linger a little bit. Then we'll go through and try to figure out what's going on in the story. And then I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective and see if that doesn't help us understand what, what this has to do with Advent and John the Baptist. So if, if you think about it, you, you look at something one way, and if it's lit in a certain direction, you see something. 
But if it's lit in another direction, it can look in a different way. And so here's an example. Go ahead and run that video. An example of looking at things from different perspectives and getting different takes on what it is. I like that video and I thought that was helpful is because from one direction it's just a pile of junk on a box. If you don't look at the, the, the shadow, if you just look at the box, it looks like it's just a pile of junk. I don't understand it. Why is it so such a mess? But then when you look at the shadow on the wall, it's a scene. And then when that, that turns, when you look at it from another way, all of a sudden it's a person. And that is kind of what we're going to do this morning. I hope to do this morning with Second Kings is it looks like a kind of a jumbled mess. We don't understand what's going on. We'll get that cleared up, and it'll be a scene, and then we'll see through that and see what that's pointing to. So as we go through this, the, the outline of the text is pretty straightforward. There's the journey, verses 1 through 7, that's threefold repeat. Then there's the crossing, which is verse 8. Then there's the request, which is 9 and 10. And then there's the departure, which is 11 and 12, and a confirmation comes at the end. So let's take a look at that. What is going on here? So verses 1 through 7, I won't repeat them all. It follows a pretty basic, pretty straightforward theme. Um, it starts at uh, Gilgal, and, um, and Elijah is going to move. Actually, let, we need to back up to the first verse. Is now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. So the, the author is giving us a clue as to what's going to happen. And as we go through this, you'll see everybody involved in this story knows what's going to happen. There's nobody surprised. Right? Elijah, is he gets to the end, and he's like, so before God takes me away, what do you want? And as Elisha is following, every single time they come to a town, the sons of the prophets come out and announce to him what's going to happen. So there's no surprises here. This is, this is what's going to happen. And then it follows that same outline. Uh, stay here because the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Uh, stay here because the Lord has sent me to Jericho. Stay here because the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. So there's this movement. And Elisha's response is always the same. I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm with you. And then once they get there, the prophets show up and go, hey, by the way, he's going to get taken away. And I love Elisha's response. I know. Be quiet. You know, it's, yeah, I got this. I understand what's going on. So what on earth is that about? What is happening in that section? It's just such a weird story. Well, what happens is we have to understand the kind of the history of, of this region, that the cities, the places that he's moving to are not random. They're not some out of the left field kind of thing. This is actually recounting the first steps of Israel coming into the promised land. They cross the Jordan in verses one through th or chapters one through three of, of, um, of um, Joshua. Then in chapters four through six, they arrive at Jericho. Then after that, 7 through 9, they're at Bethel. And then finally, at chapter 10, they get to Gilgal. So what's happening is this is kind of a going backwards through the entry into the promised land. And, and that's, that's the direction they're moving. Because if you plot these on a map, they don't make any sense. They're kind of, it's not a straight line. It, it goes back and forth. And, and so commentators were very frustrated about that. It's like, dude, it's cool. It's, it's historical. It's what was going on. So the author is just packaging this in a way that reminds us of the uh, conquest of the land, but kind of in reverse, going a different direction. And so um, 
that's the first part of it. That's, that's what's happening there is the direction that we're moving, that, that movement. Now we get to the crossing. So we arrive at the Jordan, and verse 8 says, Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water parted to one side and the other until the boat was going to cross over on dry ground. And this is recalling Israel's entry into the promised land. So what had happened is Moses had led them out of Israel or out of Egypt, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, um, not because Moses refused to take directions from his wife. That's a common joke, but it was because the Lord was judging them. And, and the generation that was being rebellious and unfaithful, they were going to drop dead in the wilderness, and the next generation would go in. Well, it's time for that. And so they get to the edge of the Jordan, and in chapter 3, this is how the story goes. This is how it's explained. It says, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, parenthetical statement, by the way, now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout this time of the harvest. So this wasn't just the normal Jordan. The Jordan's a decent-sized river to begin with. This is in the springtime, and so all the, the water and the, or the snow is melted on the mountains, flooded into um, the Sea of Gethsemane, and now it's flowing down the Jordan. It's overrunning its banks. That's the picture. And as soon as they dip their toes into it, the waters coming up from above stood up in a heap very far away. So imagine the, the river's raging, and the priests are walking straight to it with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. As soon as their foot hits wet ground, all of a sudden, the water stands up and marches away. The water coming down from, from the north is rolling back in this big heap of water. It's just an amazing scene. Uh, it rolled up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city is that is beside Zarephan. No clue where those are, but they're very far away from wherever they crossed. So what the answer, or the end of that story is, is the Lord... Um, the priest bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel passed over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So there's the picture, is the priests step on the water, the water parts, they pass through on dry ground. That's exactly what happened with the crossing of Elisha and Elijah. As Elijah takes off his gown, he rolls it up so it's in kind of a, a longer shape, and he strikes the water. And as soon as he strikes the water, it just stands up and parts, and they walk through on dry ground again. So again, this is recounting the entry into the promised land, but going backwards. We're, we're heading out now. So they've gotten across the, the river, and they're standing on the, um, the other shore. When they crossed, this is um, uh, verse 9, when they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So Elijah never anticipated Elisha not coming with him, I don't think. That's a rhetorical device. That was a way to do something. We'll explain what that is in a little bit. Um, because he, he anticipated him being there. But, but Elijah asked, what can I do for you? What is it that you want? Why did you follow me when I told you to stay? And he says, ask what you want. Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Um, a little complicated. This is not uh, Elijah's uh, spirit. So human beings are basically two parts. There's material and immaterial. Body and either the uh, spirit or the soul, depending on how you want to talk about it. This is not a piece of Elijah's spirit being removed and put on Elisha. It, it's not Elisha's spirit now possessing Elijah. 
speak. Elijah can't be Elijah if he doesn't have the spirit. You gotta have both. So what is it then? Well, it's probably talking about the spirit of Elijah is that spirit that animates Elijah, empowers him. So the spirit of the Lord that's been on Elijah, that's, that's been working through Elijah, doing all these wonderful miracles, Elisha says, I want double portion of that. So what does it mean to be a double portion? What's a half portion of the spirit? I don't know how that works. What he's asking for is essentially he's saying, I want the, the rights of the firstborn. And, and it comes from Deuteronomy 21. Um, Moses wrote, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved. This is saying if he um, has two wives. Um, by giving him a double portion of all he has for the first fruits of his strength, this is the right of the firstborn. So the firstborn has a right to a double portion of what everybody else is going to inherit from the father. That's what Elisha is asking for. He wants a double portion. He wants the firstborn's portion. Well, why is that? Well, because back at the beginning, uh, in chapter 19 of First, uh, first Kings, um, when Elijah is, um, has just faced off against the prophets of Baal, and he's hidden out in the wilderness and he's exhausted, God gives him rest, brings him food, feeds him, takes care of him for a while, lets him just take it easy, and then he says, okay, now, it's time to go. You've got to get back to work. Tells him to anoint a couple of people, including Elisha, as the one who would succeed him. So this has been known for a while that Elisha would succeed Elijah. So when Elisha says, I want a double portion, it's the same words from, uh, from um, Deuteronomy 21. Uh, I want a two mouth, literally in Hebrew, but it means double portion. So that's what he's asking for. I know I'm, I'm in the position to inherit your, uh, your role as prophet, and so I, I want the, uh, the firstborn's portion of that. So I, I want the double portion, and then verse 10, and he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken away from you, it shall be for you. But if I, you do not see me, it shall not be so. So you asked a hard thing. Actually, what he's asking for is impossible for Elisha or Elijah to grant him. He can't command the Holy Spirit to go on who he will. So Elijah is, not, is saying, you've asked a hard thing. I can't do this, but the Lord can and so he's counting on that promise from the Lord that Elisha would take over his mantle as a prophet. And so apparently, prophetically, apparently it's revealed to him, if you see me when I depart, then it will happen. If not, it won't. I don't think that's a conditional, like, um, Elisha's going to, you know, like, um, pull out his smartphone and, and hit Twitter real quick and go, oh, darn, I missed it. I don't think that was the danger. I think what that is is, is that saying, you have followed me so far. You have been with me at every step. If you're continuing to be with me as I'm taken away, then this is how it's going to happen. Because you will show that you've been with me. You've, you've been that person who should inherit the, uh, the uh, mantle that I've had. So that's, that's Elijah's uh, promise to him. Now the departure, verse, starting in verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, Chariots of fire and horses of fire separated them. So they not just had this, this conversation about if you see me, you'll receive it. They're continuing to discuss, maybe talking about what's been happening so far, looking forward, what's, what we got to worry about. Look, Ahab is a bad dude. Here's what you, you got to keep an eye on. Something along those lines. But as they're discussing, as they're talking, chariots of fire and of horses of fire separate the two. So the pictures of Elijah's ascension is always the chariots up in the air. I think they're on the ground zooming towards him. And so they separate as the, the, the chariots go through. Um, 
And then Elijah went up in a whirlwind into the, the heavens. Um, the other picture that you see is Elijah riding the chariots of fire. And that's not what it says. It was a whirlwind that picked him up and carried him away. So he's, he's now been assumed into heaven. The chariot, And Elisha saw this and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So he watched him go. So he's yelling, my father, my father. He's been in a, in a relationship with Elijah as kind of a, a master and a disciple for a long time. And so he's, he's connected as, as a father and a child. Now, when he says the chariots of, the chariots of Israel and horsemen, I don't think he is talking about the chariots of fire and the horses of fire that just came through. Elijah saw those. He's not pointing it out to him. I think what he's yelling, and a lot of commentators think this is him announcing uh, uh, something about Elijah, is I think he's pointing to Elijah and saying the true strength of Israel has been Elijah, the chariots and horsemen. In, in those days, to have a chariot was like to have a, an M1 Abrams tank. It was the battle equipment of the day. It was, it was darn near invincible if you had chariots. So when Elijah announces this, my father, my father, what he's saying is, you were the true strength of Israel. You were what made it great, is, is what he's saying as he's um, watching Elijah go. So he misses him. Now, Elijah um, is one of the two people in the Bible who was assumed into heaven. Elijah is carried up in a whirlwind and, and goes up. The other one is from Genesis chapter 5, Enoch. And Genesis 5 says, Enoch had lived, uh, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So that's traditionally understood to be the other person who was assumed into heaven. And that's it. Um, those are the only two that we know of. Some people, sometimes you can think that Moses was, but Moses actually died and was buried. Um, but listen to the, the burial testimony. This is from Deuteronomy 34. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So who buried Moses? God buried Moses. Because nobody knows where he's buried. So that, that's, that's the two people who have been assumed into heaven, is Elijah and Enoch. As far as we know, nobody else. Um, at least we haven't seen it happen. So that's the departure. He's gone. Um, we won't see him again for a while. We'll have to wait till we get to the New Testament to meet him again. Now we get the confirmation. Did the spirit move from Elijah to Elisha? Did it happen? And so uh, the other half of verse 12. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. The, the tearing of clothes, rending of the clothes, was a common Hebrew way of mourning. So he's missing his father. He tore them in two. And then verse 13. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. So possibly this cloak is representing, is showing us physically the, the movement of the spirit from Elijah to Elisha because it fell off him as he's going into heaven. Like God couldn't have you know, kept it together or something. So I think it's a, it's a physical representation. So he takes it and he goes back to the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah, which had fallen from him, and struck the water. And he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That is not a cry of doubt. I don't think he's saying... Um, I don't think that God's with him. What he's saying is, is, is announcing, Lord, are you with me? 
where are you? Are you with me? And so he does the same thing Elijah did, struck the water, and it parts again. We have a physical representation of the fact that the spirit was actually given from Elijah to Elisha. He performs the same miracle in the same way. And Elijah went over. And then in verse 15, here's the confirmation. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, there was 50 that accompanied them to uh, the Jordan and then stopped there at the river. When they saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. There's our commentary. That's what that meant. And they came to meet him and they bowed down before him. So that's, that's the story of Elish, Elijah's departure, of the movement of the spirit from Elijah to Elisha. Um, here's the million-dollar question. What does any of this have to do with John the Baptist and with Advent? How do you connect that? It's like, okay, Tim, you picked it. You've got to show us how this routes together. And this is where we've looked at it from one direction when we just read it, and it just looked like a jumble of stuff on a cardboard box. Then hopefully as we've gone through it a little bit, it's like we turned and now we see this scene. We can understand what was happening a little bit better. Now it's time to turn that box and see whose portrait we get to see. So that's, that's the trick of this. This is going to be the hard part. So what is Elijah doing? If we go back to the beginning of the story, Elijah kept telling Elisha, stay here. I have to go to the next place. Did I get it backwards? Oh, I thought at least it was giving me a look like I got, I, I, I'm paranoid because I keep going Elijah and Elisha, and I know I'm going to swap them. So Elijah tells Elisha, stay here because I'm going to the next place. And he doesn't. And he goes to the next one, and he goes to the next one. This is a kind of a reversal of Israel entering the promised land. And so what Elijah is doing is he's pointing to Eli Elisha and saying, stay here in the promised land. He's pointing him away from himself. Because he's, going, he's getting ready to depart. He's going to go away. So he's telling Elisha, you stay here. And he's pointing him towards the promised land. Stay. And Elisha, or Elisha knows he, that's not what he's actually being told to do. He's got to follow his master because he's a disciple. So that's the picture is, is go there. That's kind of like what John the Baptist does, isn't it? John the Baptist comes and he points away from himself the whole time. When the Pharisees came and they said, are you the prophet? He says, no, I'm not. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. And when he said, no, I'm not Elijah, I think he was answering their question, not our question. They were wondering, is this Elijah resurrected from the dead and standing before me? No, I'm not. But later Jesus would interpret it and say he comes in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist is just a man, but the spirit of Elijah rests on him. So when, when they say, well, what are you doing here? Who are you? What he says and what he promises is he points away from himself and he says, there's one coming after me who is greater than I am because he was before me. I'm not worthy to bow down and untie his sandals. So just like Elijah is pointing Elisha back to the promised land, go back, go back, go back, John the Baptist is going to come and say, don't look at me. Don't, don't come to me. Don't think I'm the one. And he's pointing away from himself. So when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's the first part, is I think Elijah is pointing away from himself. The, the, what I'm going to do here is I'm trying to follow the New Testament way of reading the Old Testament. And so I'm looking for these themes about what's happening, these bigger themes. It's really easy, and all last night my tiny little brain kept spinning and going off into all the minutia, and what does this mean, and what does that mean, and what does this mean? But if we look at how the New Testament handles the Old Testament, it, it, it tends to keep us focused on bigger themes. So I'm trying to not go get lost in the minutia, but I think that was what 
was going on with Elijah pointing away from himself. You go stay there. So if that's true, if I've got that right, then why is Elijah pointing to the promised land and saying stay there? And the reason is because the promised land is something more than just that chunk of real estate. It means something bigger. What does it mean? Well, to get that, we have to go through Hebrews 3 and 4. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, there's this talk of the promised land. So Hebrews 3, verses 14 and 15, the author says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence in him firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. He quotes Psalm 95. And in 3 and 4, he's going to quote Psalm 95 quite a bit. Psalm 95 is talking about entering the promised land. That was the rebellion. That was Mirabah. That was, they, they doubted, they complained, they whined, and so they couldn't go into the promised land. Now, where the author in Hebrews takes it is he turns it into this idea of God's rest. So he's saying they couldn't enter God's rest because of their rebellion at Mirabah. In other words, they weren't going to go into the promised land where they would find rest, where they would find rest from their travels instead of wandering for 40 years, where they would find rest from their adversaries. The enemies wouldn't pursue them. God would secure them. Where they would find rest from, kind of funny to say, manna. They were getting tired of manna. Well, if they got to the promised land, that would produce all the grains and all the food, fruit and all the food that they needed, and it would be in abundance. So for them to enter the promised land was to enter rest, to God's rest. And so that's where I get that is from the very beginning of, of chapter 4 of Hebrews. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let me pack that a little bit. The author is saying, you guys, listen. We have an opportunity to enter God's rest. Don't miss it. Don't, don't, don't miss this. Enter God's rest. And the way he appeals to it is he says they didn't get to enter God's rest because of unbelief. They wouldn't trust God. And so God says at the end of uh, Psalm 95, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So for Israel to enter rest is to go into the promised land. For us to enter rest is to rest in Christ. So that's the picture. That's why the promised land is a picture of Jesus. That's why Elijah is pointing and saying, stay here. The promised land is where God's promises will come to you. The promised land is where God will meet you repeatedly. You're going to build a temple here. You're, you're going to build, um, you're going to have sacrifices here. You're going to have, see God's miracles, prophets. All of these things will happen in the promised land. Stay in the promised land is where he's pointing. For us to see that then is to say what John is, or what yeah, John the Baptist is saying. He's pointing us to Christ. Enter God's rest. Go to Jesus. And so I think that's what's going on there. That's why he's pointing at those things. Um, and that's why he's telling Elijah, go, and Elijah won't. Um, so then what is it about Elijah pointing and, and saying, don't follow me? And where he winds up is his departure. Well, that's John the Baptist again is doing a similar kind of thing. He said um, in John chapter 3, he says, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase and I must decrease. So Elijah knows he's about to decrease. 
and he's pointing Elisha back. Go to the promised land. Go back. So John the Baptist is taking a similar approach. He shows up. He's a big deal. And he's pointing away to Jesus because he must decrease as Jesus comes on the scene. So what about the prophets? What about the prophets? Do you not know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Got it. What's up with that? That was just a weird thing. The story would stand perfectly well if the prophets never said a thing, wouldn't it? If they just ran into the prophets. So why do they speak? Why do they have this saying? And I think what the picture is, is I think it's pointing us to, it's not just John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying this. The scriptures are pointing to John the Baptist coming. The prophets are making that announcement. And when you ask that question, well, it's John the Baptist? Well, kind of John the Baptist. Basically, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Beginning to end, it's about Jesus. So for creation, for example, the very beginning, chapters 1 and 2, all, the New Testament approach is this, John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus made the world. Jesus was present and operative in creation. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So right at the beginning of the Bible, we have Jesus. He's there at creation. The next step in the story is the fall and redemption. Is Jesus present in the fall? Well, he's promised in the fall because after the fall, after, after they've eaten the fruit, God curses the serpent, and this is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's immediately the promise of a deliverer. So Jesus is present there. Well, okay, well, what about all of the Bible? Can, can we just save some time instead of going through all the stories? Yeah, how about Romans 3? But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So what are the, the law and the prophets, the rest of the writings of the Bible, what do they teach? Righteousness through Christ. So the Bible is all about that. So when the prophets are talking, the prophets are looking forward to this promise of John the Baptist indirectly, but of the coming of the Christ. But why, why John the Baptist is the prophets? Well, how is John repeatedly introduced in the New Testament? He's a quote from Isaiah 40, one of the prophets announcing it. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, make straight his paths. The prophets were pointing to John the Baptist. So the prophets in our story are telling Elijah, or Elisha, Elijah's going to depart. They're prophesying what's about to happen. And Elijah, or Elisha says, yeah, I know. You don't have to keep explaining it to me. I get it. So the prophets are pointing forward to John the Baptist, who's pointing forward to Jesus. So this is another way that the spirit of him was on them. So John the Baptist is Elijah. Um, and there's more that could be said about that. We could unpack more, and we'll probably hit more on that as we go through this Advent series. But at least in this way, we can see how Elijah's spirit could be on John the Baptist without it being a possession. Is This is something that had been prophesied. This was a story that was set up to point us to John the Baptist coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's the spirit that animated and empowered Elijah is at work in John the Baptist. 
like I said, it was really, it'd be really easy for me to get lost in the, in the minutia of that story. There are so many more things to unpack. For example, when I was reading through some of the commentaries, they said, okay, if Elijah is John the Baptist, then who's Elisha? Here are seven options. I, you know, I don't think it really matters. I don't think that's really the point. I, I, so if you're asking yourself, well, then who's Elisha? I don't know. Maybe it's the church. Maybe it's us. I don't know. Um, because one of the things Jesus said was, you'll do greater miracles than I. But that's Jesus. That's not John. So I, I don't know. I'm not... That's not the point. If you back up and just take it in a big scope, I think that's the picture we get is John the Baptist is heading toward his departure. And all the way along that departure that he knows is coming, he's pointing back and saying, go to the promised land. Go to where God's promises will be fulfilled. So Elijah has this conflict with the bad king of Israel, Ahab, and his bloodthirsty wife, um, that, that conflict goes on through most of kings until his departure. John the Baptist has conflict with a bad king in Israel, Herod, and his bloodthirsty wife, Herodias. Elijah got to go off in a whirlwind. It, it, John the Baptist had his head removed. So this is like letting us know it's worse now, but the victory is even bigger. So that, that's our Advent promise. That's our Advent picture of how is John the Baptist. This is one way in which John the Baptist is working in the spirit of Elijah. He's pointing us to. Elijah pointed to something greater than himself. And, and hopefully now, once we've turned that cardboard box, now we can see that silhouette. Not just the scene, but the scene turns into a silhouette. That's our Advent season. That's our Advent picture as we'll be looking at John the Baptist and how he points us to Jesus. And hopefully we'll see that same picture show up over and over again as if we're doing this right we'll see Jesus through John the Baptist let's close in prayer Lord you um, you made promises uh, thousands and thousands of years ago uh, at the fall of man when when Adam disobeyed and ate the fruit that you told him not to immediately there's the promise of a redeemer the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and Lord, that promise is echoed and repeated and demonstrated and shown in stories and, and pictured over and over again until the coming of Christ. And so Lord, we're grateful for this chance to look through, New through Old Testament eyes at the New Testament reality we know, who is Jesus Christ. Would you fill our holiday season with an anticipation of his birth? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.